I've so enjoyed all of those videos that we've seen since March when we started celebrating our 25th anniversary as a church. I've enjoyed seeing them, just seeing every member who's on them rehearsing all the different ways that God has, has been growing them in the faith. And as I, I hear them, I think about their stories. I know each one and thinking about what the Lord has done in their life. It's such a tremendous display of God's grace and what a joy to be a part of all of that. Our passage this morning addresses how we are to love those who are in our congregation but whose lives are being defined by theological error. I want you to think about that for a moment. How do you love people whose lives are beginning to be defined by error? And that error that they are living in is beginning to impact the rest of the church. Now I want to emphasize, how do we love them? Not just correct them, not just discipline, not only confront, not simply change them, how do we love them? Now why would I connect this challenging topic that we're going to address this time and next that we're together in it, how do, how do I connect that to the idea of love? Well, it's not hard because you remember what we studied last time in chapter 3 verse 5. You remember what the Apostle Paul was praying for them? May the Lord direct your hearts into what? The love of God. Now Paul knows what he's going to write next. He knows what command he's about to give them and he's actually praying before he gives this command to deal with those whose lives are marked by theological error. He's praying that God would direct their hearts into the love that comes from God. And then he gives this command. So this is really about how do we actually love one another when error begins to define the way that someone lives. I want you to notice here, Paul is not frightened by people who have problems. He's not freaked out by them. He's not fearful of them. He's not frustrated with them. He's not angered by them. He's not agitated. He's not exasperated by the issue that he addresses here. He is desperately concerned from deep, personal, fervent, Christ-motivated love for this flock. That's how he's been praying. Now what we're going to address from this passage this week and the next time we come to it is, I, I know this is a very difficult subject. In fact, I, I think may, it might be that we would never really talk about this if it weren't the next verse in the study. But here it is and it's appropriate for us. And, and I, I understand how hard this, it, this is because it is hard for us. How do we know what to confront? How do we know when to confront? How do we know what to say when we're going to confront some error? How do we even have and express the right kind of attitude when we're going to confront someone in an issue like this? How do you communicate love when you're discussing really difficult personal issues with someone? How, how is it that when we do this, we can avoid being divisive with one another and there's a host of other challenges? Now, those are the kinds of concerns that conscientious Christians have. I know there's some out there who, they might say, yeah, I really don't care about any of that. 
I just, I just love my harshness because I'm supporting truth. I don't know if anybody would actually say that, but you sometimes feel that way. No, I, I really don't care about how it lands. I just care about the truth. I don't think that's the kind of heart you see in the Apostle Paul here. Now, I am also sure that we've all had some bad experiences in having hard conversations. Maybe we didn't come across correctly. Maybe people received it poorly. Maybe, and I find this to be true in my own heart, I find this to be true in conversations with others. Sometimes we're so fearful of having the conversation, we ignore it and we don't address it. And then people get soured toward us because we're not addressing the issue at hand. We're gonna make mistakes. We have made mistakes in how we talk about errors in others' lives and those mistakes, when we make them, have you ever noticed that we make these mistakes and it's the mistake that becomes the main issue and not the, the real issue at hand with the theological error that's defining someone's life? I should have taken this step, I didn't, and now because I didn't act on it, now it's the big issue. Some might even ask, should we even be doing this? Should we even be having conversations about problems in everybody's life? I mean, after all, aren't we all sinners? We're all sinners. We have our own blind spots, and if the truth were told, we would probably, likely, find ourselves being confronted all the time because we all have our issues. And I know that it's easy to see the blind spots or see the errors in other people's lives and and forget about or minimize the issues we have in our own, right? That's why Jesus had to say that in Matthew chapter 7. Do you actually treat your issues as if they were specks? You don't see the log in your own? But with all those problems, what happens if we ignore these issues? Well, it's easy to construct a church life that kind of skims the surface, isn't it? It's easy to do that in the beginning and you never really come alongside to lovingly assist each other to actually flourish and you leave people to flounder in error, life-dominating error, an error that when left alone will begin to impact other people and perhaps even ultimately begin to impact the testimony of the entire church. By ignoring issues, we could actually destroy the very fellowship we think we're trying to preserve. Now, before I walk through this passage in detail, I want to unpack the principles that I think we have to understand before we, we, we see the details here. We've, we've got to understand some backdrop, so I want to take some time to do that, so be patient with me, all right? Be patient with me before I get into the very first point. I know the note takers are like, I'm ready. Just get into this. No, let me, let me give you something else to take notes on, all right? Let's, let's talk about some background because this is so essential and I think this sets the table really well for what we're talking about and I think we miss it when we come to this passage many, many times. I wanna talk about first to set the table for this who it is that this passage addresses. And what I mean by that is, who is it that is being confronted in this passage? Well, you look at verse 6, and and it seems clear, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from who? Every brother who leads an unruly life. 
Now I want you to notice a few things about this person who needs to be confronted. I mean, first, do you notice it is a brother? And what does that mean? Well, the fact that he's referred to here as a brother is really basic. This is a church member. This is a church member. This is a Christian who fellowships with you in the same congregation. And I do want to note right off the bat, that assumes church membership here. And I think we can see that easily from the text. When he's referred to as a brother, who is Paul writing to in the beginning? In chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians, the congregation that meets in the city of Thessalonica. And every other reference to this church Paul makes is referring to them as brethren, family members. When he says brothers, he's talking about church members. So this is a brother. Now also, it describes this brother or this member as someone who is unruly. That's a very important term to unpack here. The word unruly is the Greek term ataktos, and it's only used two times in the New Testament. Here and in verse 11, where it's translated in verse 11 as an undisciplined life. The word undisciplined is the same word translated in verse 6 as unruly. The basic idea behind that word is this is a person who is in defiance of good order. It's a disorderly person, someone who lives irresponsibly. That's the idea. But it is probably even more specific than just living irresponsibly. It's not just a disorderly person. The word in this context that we're studying here is referring to a person who is actively disregarding biblical truth. It is a person abandoning personal responsibility because of what they believe theologically. That's really important that you see this. This is a person who is acting irresponsibly because of what they believe theologically. Let me show you that in the text. Again, look at verse 6 carefully. The brother who leads an unruly life, how is that unruly life defined by the next phrase? And not according to what? The tradition which you receive from us. Now, we will say a little bit more about this later, but the word tradition, we've looked at this already a, a few times, the word tradition as it's described here, it's referring to apostolic truth. It's referring to the details that the apostles revealed as they're revealing the New Testament mystery. It's the gospel. It's the New Testament. That's the traditions. This unruly life is what is contrary to divinely revealed scripture. And I think there's something else you need to notice about this error. It's not an error of first order. It's not a first order doctrinal error. What do I mean by that? I mean first order issues are those kinds of issues, those kinds of theological beliefs that actually define whether a person is a Christian or not. This is not one of those issues. And how do we know that? Well, again, they're referred to as a a brother. Well, that's different than, say, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul refers to the sinning person there that has to be put out of the church as a so-called brother. 
This is not the same thing as what Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 18 when he describes that person who will not listen to the church that we're to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. This is not the same issue as we find in Titus chapter 3 with a divisive false teacher who's trying to ruin the church through their theological divisiveness and they're to be put out after a first and second warning. This is different. This is very different. In fact, look at verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy. Do not treat him as a non-Christian. But what? Admonish him as a brother. You admonish him as a brother. That tells me that this unruly person, this undisciplined person who is living in theological error This is not an error about how to define the Christian faith and this is not a person being put out of the church. Not at this point. They're not being removed from the congregation. They're still treated as a member. They're a brother. But I do want you to see, even though they are a member and they're not violating any kind of first order issue, they're not overturning what it means to be a Christian, it is a member who is violating what we could call second order issues. Second order issues are those issues that we might disagree with on, but we could still be members of the same church. We still define our fellowship together. We can be a part of the same church. Maybe we would distance ourselves from other Christians in other places, maybe like the church next door to us. We would define the church very differently. We're not going to be Methodists, right? We're going to be Baptists. There's certain kinds of convictions we glean from the scripture, but we're not saying that they deny the gospel altogether. But this person likely is not denying the gospel. They can still be in the same church, but there's error. And Paul is assuming that error has to be addressed. In fact, what they're violating might not be a second order issue. It might be a what we call a third order or a tertiary issue, those are things that you could disagree with within the same congregation, stay within the same congregation. Because evidently this person's still a member, still a brother in the church in Thessalonica. There's no discussion here about removing them. But what we're gonna notice is sometimes those third order issues, tertiary issues, that you can disagree on and still be members of the same church, the way you apply those to your life might elevate them to a second order issue. Or it might elevate them to another level in which you have to really address it because it's beginning to negatively impact the entire congregation. It's a theological issue. They're violating the traditions And that violation is beginning to define their lifestyle. In fact, verse 6 is very clear with that. They are leading an unruly life. The word leads is the normal term that is translated as walking. They are living their life. They're walking about their life as as if this irresponsible application of theological error, it's defining who they are. It's the way they live And we get the sense from this text, they're beginning to meet with people and talk about how they're living their life in light of this theological error and suggest that, well, maybe you should think of it the way I'm thinking of it. How do we get that? Where do we see that? Well, verse 11, it says, 
you're not only neglecting your responsibilities, you're becoming, and the term is busybodies. What does that mean? Well, you're going to other people and trying to intertwine them with your issue. You're getting involved in their life and trying to bring their life along with you into this error and have them live like you're living. This is complicated. I just wonder at this point, have you been sitting there thinking of people in your mind? Some of you are like, was it showing on my face? Was I looking at someone specifically? No, you're just all looking at me, so I guess you think I've got the issue, perhaps. No, this is hard. Because we do know people, perhaps within the same church, who are listening to things that are not helpful and they're beginning to define their life and they're not denying the faith. They're not walking away from Christianity. But it's unhelpful. It's not sanctifying. It's not helpful to Christian growth and if it begins to spread, it could begin to negatively affect the fellowship of the church. Now, we have to be careful with that. I I realize the specific way that this unruly person is exhibiting his sin through failing to provide for his family's needs here. That's what's being addressed. He's lazy. He's not working for his bread. And some would say, well, this is just a lesson on laziness. Well, it's, it's not just a lesson on laziness. We will get into some of that, of what's motivating this. Why are they lazy? Because of what they believe theologically. Something they are believing is causing them not to work. So the real issue is, here's theology driving an application. It's wrong theology driving a wrong application and that's beginning to affect the church. And it has to be addressed. So how do we deal with that? That's what I want us to talk about. So I want to make sure as we're looking at this, we're not talking about someone that we're about to remove from membership. We're not talking about someone who's about to be brought up at the members meeting and put on the care list because we think they're walking away from the faith or their immoral behavior is so defining that we can't tell if they're a Christian or not. That doesn't seem to be the case here. This is someone who isn't denying the gospel, but they are embracing an error that's defining their life and it's beginning to negatively impact the church fellowship. How do you deal with that? Well, I I thought I would get through more than I am, but I'm just going to get through about from verse 6 to verse 9, I think. We'll just watch the time. We'll see how we we do because the next time I'll I'll finish it up. No matter how long it takes, we'll finish it up next time. So you're like, okay, well, when when is that? I'm not telling you. You just have to come every week. But I do, as we walk through this over the next couple of weeks, I just want to, I want to unpack all the different components that are involved in a kind of congregational love and what it looks like when you have to confront a member who's living in error. So we're going to look at a number of different components of what congregational love actually looks like when a member is living in error. Not just when someone has done something wrong, but when error is beginning to define their life. Listen, we're not advocating here. Every time you see someone make a mistake or they say something incorrect, you're, you're like, okay, we need to have a conversation. Let's set a lunch date. We're going to correct your little verbal mistake here. 
Now we're talking about someone who has embraced something that's clearly not where the Bible is going. It's defining them and they're beginning to involve other people in it and you have to step in at that point. What do we do? First component of how we love them congregationally. One, distance yourself. You say, what? I thought you said we're gonna be involved. Yeah, this is part of the involvement. Now again, we're just walking through the passage. What does it say in verse six? Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you what? Keep away from. This is really interesting. If you have a member who needs to be addressed, even publicly, over a sin that is not over a first order issue, it's not a gospel rejecting issue, then the first component is to distance yourself. Well, notice Paul makes this very strong. We command you. That's not an insignificant term. The word command is the same word that we saw last week in verse 4 when Paul said, I have confidence that you not only will do, but you are doing what we command. He gave commands in the first letter in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. Verse 10, it'll be described again. We give you this order. Verse 12, we command you. It's a strong word. It's not the same term that Paul normally uses when he wants to passionately urge a behavior. That's the word parakaleo, where he comes alongside to passionately urge. This is a stronger term, a stronger word, command. And in case you don't feel the weight of that term, he says, we're commanding you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not Paul making this up. This is not optional. This is Paul representing the divine will of the sovereign Lord over the church, Jesus Christ, who died and bought the church for himself. So you begin to feel the weight. This is not an optional issue. We have to do this. It's a congregational command as well. He addresses the brethren, all the members of the church, and all of the yous of this text are plural, meaning this is something the whole congregation is to be involved in. The church membership is addressing this member. And I want you to see something else. This command is actually directly connected to Paul's prayer that he just prayed. And I think this is something for us to pause and just think about for a moment. In fact, if you look very carefully, verse six starts with the little word now. It's the conjunction that we saw last week, day. It's sometimes translated and, but often, most often it's translated as but. It's a small contrast here. So may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ, but... We have to command you. May he lead you into love, but we have to command you. And I want to remind you, he prayed for this church. We saw it last week from a deep-seated concern, a love for them that he had that was personal. This shouldn't surprise us. We have seen before how Paul had a very significant relationship with his church. And I want you to notice that. He's praying for them because he loves them. He wants them to grow in the love of Christ. He is passionate about these people. Turn back for a moment to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I just want to remind you what kind of relationship he had with this congregation. 
because what he commands flows from his personal affection for them. And they know how much he loves them. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. How did Paul love them? When he was first with them, he said this about his time with them. We proved to be gentle among you. How gentle? As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. What kind of relationship did he have with them? Like a mother caring for her children. Verse 8, having so fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, our soul. That's what that word means. Because you'd become very dear to us. Look at verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, how? As a father would his own children. I mean, what kind of relationship does he have with them? Look at verse 17 of chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope? or joy, or crown of exaltation, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and our joy. What kind of relationship did this man have with his church? I mean, he loved them dearly. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could endure it no longer, that is being absent from them, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. He loved them. He couldn't stand not knowing what was going on with them. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 7. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And you could go on in that chapter, you see it. Why do I spend time reminding us of this? Paul doesn't come out of nowhere to just issue commands. When he comes out and he says, now we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ church, everybody in that church has such a relationship with him that they know his heart for them. This is not the person just coming out saying, I just love truth and I don't care how it lands on you. He does care. He does care. And commands when you know that someone loves you in the Lord and has expressed that love for you in very tangible and life-altering ways like Paul had. You receive that differently, don't you? You listen to that more carefully, don't you? What he commands comes from his affection his deep friendship, his biblically defined fellowship, family-like love that he had for this congregation. How instructive is that for us? Now, I understand you don't have to have this personal close friendship with someone before you confront sin. Sometimes you have to confront sin and you don't have that close of a relationship. But how does it land on you when you do have that close relationship? 
Now, let me put it this way. If someone's coming to you to tell you what you're doing wrong and they've never taken the time of day to spend any time with you or get to know you or invest in you or pray with you, how ready are you to listen to what they have to command? I think it makes an impact. When you know that the person confronting is the one who has shown a testimony of love and care and commitment and they've taken the time and they've taken the opportunity to personally invest, you hear it the way Paul expresses it here. I mean, he spent the first five verses communicating his love and concern in prayer to God for them. They have a whole testimony of life to know this he's he's about to levy a very heavy order an order that comes from a very tender and affectionate heart and they know it he spent time with them he suffered with them he's pursued them he's taught them he's answered their questions he's had meals with them they've worked alongside with him so brothers and sisters let's cultivate the kind of relationship among our membership in which our congregation knows that we love each other, that we care for one another. We're not just levying commands. We're not just looking for error. When we confront, it is because we actually care about what's happening in your life, and that's obvious. Now, there is a heavy command that's given. Keep away. Keep away. Avoid, keep your distance. The word is used only two times in the New Testament here and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 20, where it's translated as take precaution. Take precaution. Maintain a distance. Now again, I just want you to notice, Paul is not here addressing the unruly person, is he? He's actually addressing the faithful how do the faithful talk to the unruly? That's what he's beginning with. He has not addressed the unruly person yet. He will, to be sure. But how do you address those who are living in the truth and they're faithful to the truth? Now, while this is a congregational command, I don't think it's public excommunication either. Keep away does not mean public excommunication. It's not a removal from membership of the church. It's a sense of protecting yourself from the influence of the error of another person. You're, you're making sure that they're not trying to draw you into their belief so you keep away from the person who's advocating a particular belief. You're avoiding casual interactions that would bring about eventual influence. John Calvin even noted this he said in his commentary on this passage, this withdrawment, however of which he speaks, relates not to public excommunication, but to private intercourse. For he simply forbids believers to have any familiar intercourse. Well, what would that look like? What is familiar intercourse? Well, you, you avoid the normal, casual, friendship-like interaction that might be a regular meal as if you are acting like there's no issue at all. You know what that looks like. So we're going to interact at church. We're going to interact during the week when we know there is an issue. In fact, the whole church knows there's an issue, but we just carry on like there isn't an issue. 
He's like, no, you, you can't do that. You have to distance yourself. It doesn't mean that you, you walk around church with that side-eye look, you know? Kind of watching you from the side. Keep my distance and you can see who's isolated this morning in their seat. Just kind of looking around. No, you're doing pretty good this morning. No, it's, it's not that. It doesn't mean that you don't have any act, interaction, but you don't interact as if there's not an issue. You greet them, you engage the issue. You greet them and you say, I am praying for you about this. You, you talk to them and you bring this up. You know, this is something I've been praying for you about throughout the week. I know it, it's something that, that we've addressed and, and I want you to know I'm praying for you about this. But you're not engaging in the kind of casual conversation and interaction that doesn't acknowledge that there is an issue that might be that depending on how that you've been immediately impacted by the error it might mean that you choose to trim off some specific interactions with a person in order to contain the influence of that wrong theology and wrong application of it you might not text with them like you used to you might not talk on the phone with them you might not grab lunch with them or watch the game together or go on the play date with with them like you used to do because you're limiting the involvement because the error is so pervasive if they're going to hold on to that then you have to be careful of what your involvement will look like you say well I need a laundry list of what that looks like I need I need hardcore specifics because this is hard Welcome to the Christian life. It is hard. There is no laundry list. It, it takes you thinking through what should this look like with us. Maybe conversation with elders and others. What, what does this look like for us? And in this specific situation, depending on its influence, that's very difficult. But it is necessary that when someone embraces a wrong theological position that begins to define their life in a way that is bringing others down, dividing the church perhaps, according to issues that are not foundational on the gospel itself, you might have to pull back the level of your involvement with them. Now before we move on from that, I do want to say just a word or two about what I think is specifically going on in this specific instance with Paul and what he's addressing here. Keep away, he says, from every brother who leads an unruly life. That's the undisciplined life. We've addressed what that means. It's the, the life of irresponsibility. And it's not in accordance with revealed truth. Can we guess what that issue might be here? legitimately guess I think we can I think we can take a good stab at it we can see it it's not really that difficult to find the word traditions here has already been used it was used back in chapter 2 verse 15 look back at chapter 2 verse 15 in second Thessalonians you'll see it so then brethren stand firm and hold on to what the traditions that you have been taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now what's interesting is he's already referred to what he talked to them about when he was with them and by letter that he had sent them earlier in chapter 2. And he's saying there are others who are trying to write letters and they're trying to overturn what we have already taught you. Look at chapter 2 verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you I was telling you these things? And if you're wondering what things would, have, would this church have been embracing that would lead some astray so that they wouldn't work anymore, well, again, look at chapter 3, 
And look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction, notice this phrase, in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. What's he referring to? What is the issue? Well, two-thirds of this letter was about eschatology. Do you notice that? Two-thirds of this letter was about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember the problem? Well, they were under persecution. And someone was telling them, your persecution is the sign that the day of God's final wrath has come. And they were misinterpreting their surroundings and they, were, they had a wrong theological idea about the coming of the Lord Jesus that Paul spent the entire chapter in chapter 2 correcting, right? In fact, he says in chapter 2, verse 2, that they were quickly shaken. There's kind of a hysteria that's going on about this, and they're withdrawing themselves. And you can imagine, they're going through this persecution, if this is the day of the Lord, and the Lord is about to come, and all of these events are, are here, and they're, they're happening now, I'm not going to work. I'm not, I'm not doing anything else. The Lord's coming. This is the day of the Lord. I'm I'm withdrawing beginning to walk away from perhaps the fellowship of the church and certainly their responsibilities, as we will learn here, away from their responsibilities to actually maintain their employment to provide for the regular needs of their family. Well, the Lord's coming, so what, what does it matter? You say, I can't even imagine that happening. I can show you literature of people who were predicting the coming of the Lord and the date of the coming of the Lord and actually withdrawing. I, I could give you personal illustrations from my own life and ministry who, of people who were just withdrawing from everything saying, you know what, the Lord's coming so I don't, I don't need to do anything. I even had a guy tell me he couldn't accept my wedding invitation because he said the Lord's going to come before your wedding so I'm not coming. We just celebrated 22 years by the way. He should have come. It was really great. You see what's going on? Not only are they withdrawing, they're starting to invite other church members to do it too. That's what mean, it means to be a busybody. We're going to other church members and we're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing this, nor, nor should you. Matter of fact, you're doing too much work. They're, they're starting to involve themselves in the lives of others to, to shape their life by this wrong-headed theology. So they're undisciplined. It's the same word as... Uh, that we see in verse six, undisciplined is the same word, unruly. If the Lord's coming back, let's not work. <laughs> that's interesting. Here's a view of eschatology and the coming of Christ that's being applied in a way that made them think they had no responsibility to work. That is a wrong theology leading to a wrong application. And did you notice, that's what we call a tertiary issue. It's a third order issue. We say this regularly. We, we don't define our church member by the details by which you define the timing of the events of the Lord. I mean, if you're, if you're not pre-trib and you're post-trib or you're not pre-mill, but you're a-mill, we allow you to be wrong in some of those things, you know? And still be members of the same church. We don't, we don't define fellowship as church members on those issues until you take that issue and you begin to divide people or you begin to live in such a way according to that that it violates other biblical 
clear, biblical, faithful ways to live. And then you have to have a conversation with someone to say, we can't do that. We, we can't live that way. You say, well, that, that, I, I don't know if I could do that in a church. I, do you know how to live in a church where none of those issues are ever addressed? What does that feel like? Over time, let it build over time. And what happens to a church body? And you never talk about it? You might have to distance yourself. I mean, in this context, he's going to say, yeah, don't, don't buy them groceries. That's what he says, don't buy them groceries. Because that's what we would normally do, right? If they didn't have employment, we're, we're going we're gonna to come alongside. We're going to help you. We're going to, well, no, don't do that. They're going to have to face some of the consequences of these decisions. And if you have interaction with them, you call them to change, but you're going to keep some distance. So the first step in dealing with a member whose theology is causing them to live in error is to distance yourself. Now, we got a lot more to come and I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with another one here in a minute, but if you walk away from this sermon today and you only do point one, that's not the whole gamut. That's not all that's involved. It's one element, one component. So be careful with this. Let me give you a second one, and that's where we'll finish today, a second component of congregational love toward an errant member. Second, imitate those who live in the truth. Imitate those who live in the truth. So again, when you get to verse 7, Paul is still addressing the faithful, not the errant. He is not directly addressing the errant member yet. So as you distance yourself from those whose theology is leading them into error, you need to actually and actively remind yourself of those who are living in the truth and follow that kind of example. And that's what Paul says in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner, or that's the same word, the unruly manner, the irresponsible way. We didn't do that when we lived among you. You should follow our example, or you should, the Greek word for follow our example is mimeomai, from which we get the word mimic. You should mimic us. When Paul uses this term to mimic it's a term of discipleship, by the way. This is, this is what discipleship is. You understand the first century when they talked about become a disciple of someone, you're, you're becoming a follower of a teacher. Just like Jesus, when, when he was asking people to follow him and follow his way of discipleship, he was asking them to learn everything that he said and live the way he lived in accordance with what he was teaching. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is living with each other in such a way that we not only teach the truth, but we live according to it and we help each other to live according to it. That's discipleship. So it's regular that Paul uses this to describe his way of communicating truth is not just preaching and teaching, but living with in such a way that can be followed. That's why he could say in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I exhort you, be imitators of me. You remember that statement? And then he, he describes it even further in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. I'm not just making this up. Imitate me as I'm imitating the life that Jesus 
taught us to live. And that life is in accordance with truth that is revealed. It's both. Even in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In Philippians 3.17, Paul says, brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Philippians 4.9, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, we have examples around us of people who have a right theology and they're living in accordance with that. Follow that example. I mean, think about that example. What had Paul been teaching them about eschatology in the first two chapters? Well, we we know what he's been, been teaching in the first couple of chapters. This is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is distinguished from our gathering to him. The day of the Lord is not going to be revealed until the man of lawlessness is revealed. We've laid all of this out, so this is not the day of the Lord. And by the way, this is what I've always been teaching you, and I've always lived in a way that is in accord with what I've been teaching you. Well, what did that look like? Notice verse 7. We didn't act in an undisciplined manner. Well, what did, what did it look like? Verse 8. We didn't eat anyone's bread That means we didn't take our daily necessities from anyone else without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Listen, Paul's eschatology did not pull him away from society. Paul's eschatology caused him to work even more and to be diligent and to invest himself in people and preach for the sake of the kingdom and even suffer for the sake of the kingdom right that's his eschatology he had the right understanding of what season of God's plan he was in and he worked and he showed him that example matter of fact he worked hard he worked to the point of personal exhaustion that's the word labor worked himself to the point of exhaustion and even in hardship he was receiving persecution for the way he was living and they knew it and he worked night and day you know what Paul Paul didn't count hours it's not like yep I gave you 40 I'm done he didn't do that because Paul wasn't in it for the pay in fact he would do whatever he had to do to make it so that the gospel could be established and not assumed to be connected to any kind of provision for himself now later after the church was established and after this was Paul's normal habit when a church was established, he would then allow them to provide for his needs so that he could go to another area that had never heard the gospel and preach to them without taking anything. I mean, we see an example of that. Before Paul got to the city of Thessalonica, he had preached in the city of Philippi. Now Philippi was an area that was very poor financially. Thessalonica was the capital city of the region, very wealthy. When he went to Thessalonica, he did not want to be like the rest of the professional philosophers around who would preach in the open square, but, you know, they had their Bible open or their philosophy book open, and you could throw your money in there, and that's what would support them. He would not do that. He actually worked a job. Maybe he was making tents. We don't know exactly what he was doing in Thessalonica, but he's in the Agora. He's in the marketplace, and he's working, and he's teaching as he's working. He's meeting with people and discipling as he's doing whatever he's doing to make a living for himself. 
But at the same time, he's allowing the saints from the newly established church in Philippi to actually send money to him to meet his needs. The church was established. They had a relationship with him. And we learn in Philippians 4.15, he says, you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So it's not that Paul wouldn't take financial remuneration from a church. He would, but that's not how he started his ministry so that the gospel was never tied to his need. It's the same thing that we learned from him back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It was a very similar situation. In fact, when Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, he's in Corinth. And he's in Corinth establishing the gospel, establishing a church. And he didn't take anything from them either because he did not want them to think he was in it for the money. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 6, Paul says, do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? What's he arguing there? There is a right that I have to receive remuneration for the work of the ministry I'm doing. That's normal. Even the law acknowledges that. He quotes the Old Testament law and he says, it is written that in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. And he says, do you think God was concerned about oxen? It's a principle. If they're working, you support the work. Or isn't he speaking for our sake, he says in verse 10? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So he has a right to this. It would be good for that church to provide but his mode of operation when he came in to establish the gospel I'm not taking anything he would later tell Timothy in the established church in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5 17 the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor and honor is a word that means remuneration or pay especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching for the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing the laborer is worthy of his wages But when Paul came to Thessalonica, he didn't come and say, listen, I'm going to preach this and you've got to provide. No, he'll work himself. Verse 9, back in chapter 3, so that you would follow our example. We wanted to be a model for you, an example for you. What kind of model? What kind of example? Not just how to preach and not receive anything from it. We lived our whole life in front of you so you could see that our theology drove our lifestyle. What we believe is the way we lived and I wanted you to see that. Have you ever noticed you're happy to support something that looks honest? You're happy to support a ministry where you see that kind of honest approach to it and you see the life that is defined by it. That's, that's what he was doing. They knew it. They knew. 
Back in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, he said, you know, brethren, our labor, our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. You know. Paul's theology, even his eschatology, drove his diligent, God-centered, Christ-dependent living. He worked hard to establish the gospel, live in light of the gospel, expect the Lord to return, and he worked for that. Follow that example. So instead of being discouraged by someone who's living in error, look at those who are living faithfully in the truth. Follow that example. Let that encourage you. Let that bolster you. Look at the example and follow that. Boy, what a, what a statement to us. Work, let our theology drive our life in the right ways. If you embrace a view of the end times that leaves you leaving behind the clear teaching from Scripture, don't follow those people. Distance yourself from them. Instead, find the people who are living an expectant way for the Lord to return and they're living diligently and maintaining a God-centered, unfearful, steady, dependent upon God lifestyle. Follow that. Anybody following a kind of theology that leaves them angry, isolated, expecting other people to provide for them, denying other portions of clear scripture, dividing believers because of it, influencing others, Distance yourself from that. Now there's more that we need to say about this and we're going to. That's just two of six different components we're going to look at. So you have to come back for the next one, all right? And if you don't, the Lord knows what you're avoiding. Say, well, I'll get it on live stream. Well, what if that doesn't work? It could happen, you know. But I want you to back up from that and as we prepare to close our time of study. What does this say about the kind of people that we are with each other? We're trying to develop a a relationship with one another where we, we say this oftentimes, we're trying to own each other's discipleship, to care for one another so that we're growing in the Lord. That doesn't have to be harsh. It does not need to be unkind. It doesn't have to be belittling. It needs to be committed, love, patience. But it also means we have the hard conversations. What would drive you to live that way? Well, you think again back to the Lord himself. What did he do with his disciples? How did he live with them? He confronted the error. Did he kick them out? I mean, Peter made some pretty big, bold, dumb statements and decisions at least that's our perspective and I guess we minimize ours in light of his Jesus didn't remove him he said no I'm going to build the church on you Hmm. all the disciples walked away when he went to the cross he didn't reject them did he in fact every time that they met they would come together and remind themselves who are we We are the body of Christ. It's who we are. We represent him. And we are the body of Christ because of what he accomplished on the cross, not because of how good we are. Which is why we take the Lord's table, isn't it? 
So when we take the Lord's table in a moment, here's what you're saying. The bread reminds you, we as a local church are the body of Christ together. Every single person who is a member of this church is a part of the body of Christ. If you're a member of a local church, you are a part of the body of Christ, which means we're all together in this. And we're saying to each other, I'm committed to you and I'm committed to you because of what Jesus did on the cross to make us a body. That's the whole point of the Lord's table. We are reminding ourselves who we are as the body because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So as we take of the table in just a moment after I pray, you need to think about that. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you turned from your sin to believe that Jesus and his sacrifice is the only thing that will make you acceptable to God? And have you connected him, yourself to his church and the initial sign of your connection to the body of Christ is baptism. It's the symbol that shows that you've already been baptized by the spirit into the body. Water baptism is the physical sign of that. It's a sign that you're a part of the church. Now the ongoing sign that you're a part of the body of Christ is the Lord's table. So if you're a believer, you've connected yourself to his church through baptism and the initial sign, you should take of the Lord's table. You don't have to be a member of Summit Woods to do that, but you should be a member of a local church because that's the body of Christ. And then when we take it, we take it together and we remind each other. We love one another. We're devoted to each other. We're praying for one another. We will have hard conversations with each other because we care about the spiritual well-being of everyone in the flock. And let me say, the world needs to see that. They need to see that testimony. We will fail. We will do it imperfectly. And as we do, we learn from it. We try to do it better. Christ is worth it. Pray with me.